are in our fifth Sunday, more Sundays than that in all of Romans, but our fifth Sunday in the middle of a section that runs a couple of chapters long of a long compiling of evidence that ultimately is going to end in 319 with silencing every single mouth or argument against God and against his justice. So, uh, trying to layer these in each week so that as you perhaps are having conversations with people or thinking through truths of God's word, that you remember what Romans 1 contains, how it differs from Romans 2, how it differs from Romans 3, even though in some ways they're all uh, lumped together here in this massive argument about the depravity of man and our sinfulness. So, verses 16 and 17 were our launching point. They really set up where the book is ultimately going to go and uh, the glorious good news at the end, that God has a power and God has a righteousness through Christ that provide a great salvation for all who believe. But following that, 118 begins to talk immediately about God's wrath in order to get us ultimately at the end of chapter three to his righteousness and his salvation and his justification. But from 118 on, we are working our way through the wrath of God that we're told is already being poured out and expressed in part toward mankind. As someone put it, God is now going to lay out the evidence for the prosecution, the indicting of every single human being. And the rest of chapter 1 then, starting in 119, and going through verse 32 of chapter 1, we have that first subgroup, whether you think of that as Gentiles, whether you think of it as mankind as a whole, um, and the point of it being in the, at the end of verse 20, that all are without excuse because they have suppressed the truth that God has made very plain and shown to them about himself through creation. They refuse to honor God. They refuse to thank him. And they give created things that God has made the glory rather than God himself. So we called that whole section the tragic condition of man without God. When we began to move into chapter 2 then, and so far we've been through the first 11 verses. Today, Lord willing, we'll get through the 16th verse. All that are layering in now that there is a coming judgment. Um, and it's called actually not judgment day, but the day of wrath in this section. And many moral people, which is what verses one and two are really getting at, particularly, are making a fatal misjudgment about whether or not they need to repent, whether or not they are sinners who will not make their way into heaven and uh, turn. And instead they are, as verses four, 4 talks about, hardening their hearts toward God. So God then in verses 5 through 11 lays out his perfect judgment and talks about how he will judge everyone on works, he will judge everyone impartially, and in between those, talk about how what happens to those who are good according to God's standard, what happens to those who are bad according to God's standard. Again, we've noted all of this without any mention of Christ, any mention of the gospel, any mention of the cross, the body, the blood, uh, the working of Christ, 
This is all just in light of what man looks like either if there is no Christ, there is no gospel, or apart from them. What's emphasized then at the end of verse 11 is very short but very intense declaration that God's judgment will be without partiality. Other scriptures that we see that emphasize this same thing are in Ephesians 6, 9, also in Colossians 2, but maybe the clearest one is by another apostle besides Paul, and that's Peter, as he writes early in his letter about us calling on a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And the response that we should have to that is that we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout our lifetime here. Martin Lloyd-Jones just reminds us, God is never prejudiced. He's never influenced by the considerations that weigh so much on us. We noted in this section that we have never experienced a perfect judgment without some kind of bias or partiality because we humans are just so distorted in that. But on this day, the day of God's wrath and judgment, all will be judged without partiality. And really, Verses 12 to 16 now are going to explain that, unpack that, prove that, give an explanation of it. That even though there are different kinds of people, different kinds of law we might say, there is still the overarching, revealing, penetrating judgment of God that is perfect in every condition. So we might say verses 12 to 16 are answering a question, how can God be impartial when people have such vastly different circumstances that they live in um, and vastly different ways in which they are made aware about God and his law. And so uh, verse 12 really lays out the two groups and then 13 deals with that second group uh, and then verses 14 and 15 back with that first group and then verse 16, a resounding conclusion that everything, even the deepest secrets of human hearts, will ultimately be brought to bear. Two terms that I want to just briefly highlight because they show up for the first time in Romans in this section, and both will have a significant role in the next few chapters particularly. The first of those is the the law. We start to see it in verse 12, and it shows up four times in that verse. It shows up nine times in today's section. And it will show up over 70 times in the book of Romans. So clearly a significant uh, element that Paul is going to use throughout his argumentation. And then in verse 13, we see for the first time justified, which will be used another dozen and a half times or so in the first 11 chapters of Romans. The law, meaning anything from the whole Old Testament to the law of Moses in the Pentateuch, to perhaps even at times the Ten Commandments. It can be used in different ways, but probably the majority of the time is on the law of Moses, the revelation that God gave Israel of what he requires of man as part of his covenant with them. And then justified, that rightness before God, to rightly relate with a perfect God, we must be justified or be right before him. So would you follow along now as I read this unit of thought that God has given us for our edification today. For all have sinned, 
who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Lord, as we come to your truth here, we acknowledge again what you had Paul express to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that every word here has been breathed out by you, that it is profitable for us, it is teaching us, you are using it to reprove and correct us, and ultimately all of this is to train us in righteousness so our hearts and lives are more formed in your image and equipping us for every good work. So please do that through this truth. For your glory's sake, we ask. Amen. So verse 12 lays out kind of the the response to the possible question from verse 11. And it's distinguishing or just laying out for us the two groups of people. There are people who have sinned without the law. This is kind of a way, and we'll see it in verse 14, of describing Gentiles or non-Jews or the vast majority of Mankind, that they have a very limited understanding of this written law, if they're even aware of it at all, or what it might say, or how their lives are to be shaped and formed around it. And the warning here is those who sin without the law, even though they don't have the law, they will still perish. This is the same word if you think about perish as John 3:16, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So perishing and everlasting life are the, are the two uh, terms here balanced against each other. To perish is to be eternally ruined, uh, dis- damned, destroyed, unable to ever be saved. Jesus used this idea in Matthew 10, 28. Again, notice the fear element that we saw in 1 Peter 1, that we are to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And to clarify here, that's not annihilation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, perish means perish. It does not mean go out of existence. But it's the opposite of eternal life, the same as everlasting destruction, the state of those outside of the life of God. We might speak of it as an eternal wrecking of the whole individual, once created so beautifully in the image of God. It's the full manifestation of sin's evil. On the other hand, verse 12 talks about those who have sinned under the law, having the law. And even though the Jews are not mentioned by name and won't be until verse 17, next Sunday's text, that is probably what is primarily being described here. Those who receive the written, explicit, objective revelation from God um, of what his standards of righteousness are. Um, 
And God's point in this is, yes, they may seem to have an advantage. We'll talk more about that in the coming verse. But it's still going to be a judgment by whatever condition, or some have referred to it as whatever light we are given from God. John Piper, not hearing the law of Moses will not condemn anyone. That's the first group. On that basis, that's not what condemns them, not knowing the law. And hearing it will not save anyone. So regardless of one's knowledge level, if anyone sins, they're unrighteous. And again, Lloyd-Jones brings this out. The judgment is concerned and interested only in this question of sin. And it does not matter who you are if you have sinned. It does not matter whether you're a member of a church. He's bringing it now to us in today's age. Have never been a member of a church or whether you come from the most saintly family. If you have sinned, you have sinned. And you will be judged according to your sin. So those without law, the law, God's written law, cannot be excused due to ignorance. And those with God's law cannot be excused due to simply knowing the law or trying on some level to obey it unsuccessfully. Now, all of this is really setting up what the rest of chapter two, uh, the next Sunday or two, are all going to unpack in greater detail. Paul's point at this point is, those who have the law may think they have an advantage for judgment day, but the law actually does not protect anyone from the wrath of God. Only righteousness does. Verse 13 then seems to unpack the second half of verse 12 and refer to Jews in particular or at least people who are aware of and on some level are seeking to follow God's law um, and why they will be judged or how they will be judged. It's not just the hearing, and this is the principle. A person is justified if one does and obeys, not simply if one hears and knows. Now, is it harder to obey God if one doesn't know the laws? Yes and no. Yes, because how can you keep a standard you don't know? But no, in the sense that it's still an impossible standard that no man is going to be able to fully fulfill. There's, the point here is there's no favored status. It is a blessing to have the law, but it's not one if we don't do it perfectly. One of the major points Jesus was making in the very first sermon in Matthew that we have, the first major teaching that he does in the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is that what people think is obedience to God's law is not what obedience to God's law really is in the judge's eyes. So Jesus gives a bunch of examples. All we have to do is go to his very first one, and you can see this vividly. Here's the first example he gave of this. You have heard, because you're hearers of God's law, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Perhaps everybody's nodding in agreement here. Yes, yes, that is what the law says, and we hold to that and believe it. But I say to you, now I'm going to reveal to you the truth from God's perspective, that everyone who is angry with his brother, now all of a sudden the standard has moved tremendously higher to the expectation of the law. To not even be angry with a brother or you will be liable to judgment. Another example, to insult a brother, you'll be liable. 
to call them, to verbally slander them and say, you fool, or any other name, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then Jesus gives a number of other examples and culminates this whole portion of the sermon to, in verse 48 with, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. An incredibly exacting standard. So, back to verse 13. What is God getting at here? Again, just like last week, we're faced with a difficult thought here to interpret and to try to figure out exactly what God is saying. One side, many, many scholars, commentators say, the doers of the law are those who have been justified through faith in Christ, whose subsequent obedience to God is seen by God as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So the faith in Christ, Christ in them, them in Christ, is what empowers them to carry out the commands of God. Rob Ventura defines this as those who having heard such teaching and gone to Christ for salvation become doers of the law because they are in fact true Christians. Tom Schreiner, Gentile Christians who manifest the new life of the Spirit by their obedience to the law. So the Bible definitely, certainly speaks of a righteous doing because of a righteous being. Few scriptures. Later in Romans, in, chapter, in Romans chapter 6, we'll see in this uh, discussion that there are two types of people or instruments. You're either an instrument for unrighteousness, in which you present yourself to sin, or you present yourself to God and you become, are made by him, an instrument for righteousness. Or another apostle, John, writes of the truth that whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Certainly may be God's point here. My personal struggle with this is that verse 13 is again, as earlier back in uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, it's just devoid of Christ, devoid of gospel, devoid of the spirit, devoid of faith. None of those are mentioned, even though we know that for these things to be true, uh, all of these things, Christ, the gospel, the spirit, and faith are necessary for that righteousness. The other possibility here is that God is saying in verse 13, there is a way to be justified before him by works if you do the law perfectly, not just internally, but in the very depths of the human heart. So God is saying, there is a way, even though no human will actually ever attain it, and we can see even from the example of Adam and Eve that it only took one sin to break that relationship, to put them out of the garden for the rest of their earthly existence. Again, part of my reasoning in, in leaning this direction is the context that all of these chapters of Romans right here are proving the guilt of every human if we just seek to stand on our own righteousness. And then also because of where Paul's going to take this conversation in about a chapter, in chapter three, verse 20, 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, awareness of it, not the ability to overcome it. And then 328, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then elsewhere, you can go to Galatians chapter 3, a couple of passages there that I think help unpacked this same thought. For all who rely on the works of the law, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, and do them perfectly. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then the beautiful gospel truth that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that's on all of us for disobeying the law by becoming a curse in our place and for us. And then a little later in chapter 3, he comes back, circles back to this after the example of Abraham, and then say, before, says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith, that's reference to Christ, and the fact that we, it would be faith that would clearly uh, save uh, and justify people. And he goes on to unpack that a little bit more. So in summary of verse 13, many Jews may know the law, obey much of the law in terms of external conformity and obedience to it, much more than Gentiles do. Their lives may look morally vastly better but they do not obey all of it, which is what condemns them, particularly if they are seeking to obey it apart from Christ. Lots more on this thought coming next week as Paul delves into it in detail. So now in verses 14 and 15, we'll turn back to Gentiles, which is people either completely ignorant or partially ignorant or just not understanding or having the law, not being taught it, not having exposure to it, etc. And here's why God says what he does in verse 12a about them, that all who have sinned without the law are still going to perish if they have sinned. It doesn't matter, God's point, it doesn't matter if you have the law of Moses or if you have a different kind of law, one that's internal, it equally condemns. Two reasons now we see for a condemnation. Back in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that there's enough in creation to give men reason to seek God. And now here, that there's enough inside the human heart to stir men to seek after God and what that might mean. So verse 14 just begins to unpack this thought further. Gentiles don't have the law, and yet by nature they do what the law requires. They do some of the things that the law calls for, just spontaneously out of their own nature. For example, act lovingly toward a neighbor or not murder. Uh, and it shows that each person has some concept. They're a law to themselves. So what's inside of them and their doing of right and wrong, good and bad, the whatever essence or basic principles, they have this innate awareness instinct inside of them shows that they don't have the written law, but they're a law to themselves. Doesn't mean they know all that's good and bad, right or wrong in God's eyes, but enough to condemn them. 
and to identify them as sinners against God. And verse 15 just explains that and weaves in the fact that they show that the work of the law, the purpose of the law that's written on their hearts has the same effect. Their conscience bears witness both about this is a good thing that you're doing, this is a bad thing, or, the, or that somebody is doing. And their conflicting thoughts back and forth are both accusing them and excusing them. Consciences aren't always accurate. They're sure, certainly not always fully informed. They certainly can influence. But as a general principle here, God is saying that all of these aspects working inside of them will on judgment day bring charges against them of their guilt as sinners. Few uh, commentators on this. Through the external voice of creation, that's chapter one, and the internal voice of conscience, that's here, God has made himself known in some sense to everyone. Schreiner, here the purpose is to show that Gentiles who do not have the written law have a twofold witness to the moral norms of the law. First, the commandments of the law are written on their hearts, and second, the conscience also testifies to the validity of the moral norms in that it condemns or approves of the behavior practiced. And then Moo, Gentiles are fairly judged for their sin because even without knowing the Mosaic law, they are conscious of moral norms and yet do not consistently keep them. And one simple example of this uh, in Scripture, in James 4.17, is the statement, the declaration, whoever knows the right thing, whether that is from the written law or from the heart of the law, some sense of what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. One simple example, if you want to pull out some element of what is written in the law, but it's also in all of us, is Matthew 7, 12, Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the basic golden rule is just one illustration of how even the things we wish others would do for us, we don't do for them. And our consciences will speak against that. Our thoughts, our own sin will condemn us in the end. Whether you sin knowing the law, the written Mosaic law, or whether you sin not knowing it, neither will escape God's piercing judgment. Two more thoughts on this. First from Martin Luther. Both are sinners, no matter how much good they may have done. The Jews, because they fulfilled the law only according to its letter, the heathen, because they fulfilled the law in part or not at all, according to its spirit. And then Boyce, we should be led away from attempts to justify ourselves by our works, as the Jews did, or excuse ourselves as people who do not know what we should do, as the Gentiles did. And verse 16, we've interrupted here a long time to unpack 14 and 15, but it really is a continuation of this thought and brings it back again to what uh, verses 2, 5, 11, and now 16 are all emphasizing that there is a day coming. Verse 6, stress judgment by works, what people do. Verse 16 here stresses judgment internally by what people have going on in their hearts. And again, we've noted some of these scriptures before, and there are certainly more than this. Just came across another one after sending this slide this morning, so... 
couldn't pack it in. I don't know how we'd have put more on. But you can see over and over, whether it's 1 Corinthians 4 or Hebrews 4 or 1 Chronicles 29 or Jeremiah 17, all are emphasizing that God has a ability to bring to light, to let nothing be hidden. There's nothing left out of the courtroom. Every piece of possible evidence is brought to bear. And maybe the clearest one is the Jeremiah 17. From the human side, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can really understand it? Even our own hearts. But in contrast to that, the Lord searches the hearts, tests the minds, and gives every man according to his ways and the fruit of his deeds. Verse 15 expresses the present work of the conscience. Verse 16 captures what it will do on judgment day. Two other brief details. I'm going to skip those quotes. Two other details that I think are worth noting or explaining in this 16th verse. The first is this intriguing phrase plopped right into the middle. In other words, without it, the verse would read, on that day when God judges the secrets of men by God, Christ Jesus. So it's like, why does Paul drop this line in there? And what is this bit about my gospel? We just sang, I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the my? Paul, it's not a gospel that Paul has drummed up, but we're also going to see it. What I want you to see is in Romans 16, which is like two years from now, he'll, he'll use the same phrase again. So you'll remember it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So, Partly, Paul may be getting at the temptation for people to turn, as he writes about in Galatians 1, to turn to a different gospel, to begin to distort the truth that, that is first understood for us and when we are saved and when we are justified. So Paul says in Galatians 1, if I come back and preach to you something different now, or if even an angel from heaven comes and preaches, and those are two very extreme hyperboles of uh, possibilities, but he's simply saying, if it's contrary to what you've already heard, let that person be accursed. Paul seems to be emphasizing here that the gospel includes judgment day. In fact, I would articulate it to, to us this way. The gospel is not primarily for feeling saved and good and safe now, today. The gospel is about being safe on judgment day. That moment will be when Christ and his righteousness most vividly stand out to us and we realize I have no chance without that righteousness. I think that's what he's emphasizing in my gospel is the gospel that I've been preaching to you does include judgment. It doesn't just end with believe now. Like there's a whole fuller story and in between now and heaven is judgment day in which we must hold to and understand our works before God on that day will never suffice. And then the closing thought. This is the first mention of, back. Oh no, there it is, thank you. First mention of Jesus in verses and verses and long section. I didn't look at Michael all the way back to 117. Long time since he has been mentioned, 
is he just tacked on at the end of this verse? Why does he suddenly show up here? And it's because he has an integral role on that judgment day, particularly on saving us from the wrath of God. But in John 5, he did articulate that all judgment has ultimately been given to the Son so that the Son will be honored in the same way that the Father is honored and feared and revered. And then in Acts 17, maybe the clearest articulation is from Paul's mouth when he's in Athens and articulates, and by the way, this was what shut him down. Everybody stopped listening to him after this sentence. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, clearly reference to Christ, raising him from the dead. Jesus will be the standard of righteousness by which all will be judged. And unless one has the righteousness of Christ, there is no human righteousness that will suffice. A couple closing thoughts from just reflecting on Romans 2 here. And really the, the argumentation of these first 16 verses is just to bring us back to what are you counting on judgment day? On the day of wrath is the way that it's worded here in Romans. Are you counting on it being mythical? That's the easiest thing to believe right now. It's not even real. That's a lie. That's just a, a manipulation tool God is using. Well, that's a pretty big risk for you to take. God's gracing you with the opportunity today to be aware as we look into Romans of what is coming and the fact that it is very, very real. Are you counting on that day that you'll have enough good works that he'll somehow overlook that despite what he says here about if you are a sinner, if you have sinned, you perish under judgment either way. And are you count, counting on the fact that God won't count your sin against you as horrifically evil? That somehow he will let your sin into heaven that hasn't been paid for, hasn't uh, endured the penalty that his justice requires and demands. There is a God, Romans 2 is saying. He is a judge. There is a day of judgment coming for all of us in which we will all stand before him and give an account. And only those that he declares righteous will escape hell, will not perish, but will enter heaven and enjoy eternal life. The key is not what I can do to obey the law better and better, whether it's the law of the heart or the Mosaic law or the New Testament commands, but to realize that you have sin and that your sin is horribly offensive to God. And unless you have his grace and mercy given to you through his son and his death on the cross, that Christ died on the cross not for his sins, because he had none, but for your sins, paying that penalty in full, that through faith in him, he will impute his righteousness to you to declare you as righteous before the Father, and God will accept that. On judgment day, we must have Christ for us in that courtroom, or we are doomed. There is no moment in time you will want Jesus for you more than in that moment. A brief word to children being raised in homes and a church where God's law is known, loved, taught, and pursued, as is the gospel. 
I want to parallel that just as verse 13 says, it's not those who hear or have the law or obey some of it who are justified before God, but those who obey it fully and completely. And so I would also say, it is not those of you who hear and know the gospel and can fill out a test on it perfectly in written form. It's those who believe it, those who cling, those who see their sin and realize that their unrighteousness will never enable them to go to heaven and who cling to Christ for his righteousness, trusting entirely in his person, his work, his power, his provision, his promises, and not your parents'.